Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In the past month, the restaurant industry has faced widespread closures and layoffs. Today, we're talking with Chef Edward Lee, who's partnered with restaurants across the country to provide food and essential supplies to restaurant workers. I had this one person send me a message on Facebook, and uh, I'm going to get emotional when I talk about this, but she said, are you guys still doing the program? I said, yeah, yeah, sure, come by. And she said, I've been waiting, and this was, you know, 10 days into it. She said, I've been waiting because I know there are people who are more desperate than me, and so I haven't been coming to the kitchen to pick up food, but now I'm hungry, and I have nothing in my fridge, and can I come by? And, you know, that kind of asking permission, you know, to be fed is just heartbreaking. Also coming up, we make England's Eaton Mess. And later on, Adam Gopnik shares a three-part philosophy on our passion for food. But first, we're chatting with Chef Eliana de la Vega about authentic Oaxacan cuisine. Eliana, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me here. Let me just start by saying I've been to your restaurant, El Naranjo, in in Austin a couple times in the last two years. Uh, And it was the best Oaxacan food I've had, (laughs) including in Oaxaca. You're the sweetest. Thank you. Just terrific. (laughs) So you lived in Mexico City, you were married there, you moved right. to Oaxaca to start El Naranjo restaurant, but mm-hmm. but you had trouble being accepted in some way. So explain that to me. Yeah, what happened, I mean, as, as you mentioned, I was born in Mexico City, and eventually in 94, actually, we moved to Oaxaca, but we opened the restaurant until 97. And uh, yeah, my mom is, well, it was Oaxacan, but because I wasn't born in Oaxaca, I was not supposed to be cooking Oaxacan food. I mean, I guess that things have changed. You know, Oaxaca is a little bit more open now than it was there. But, uh, you know, for them, I was an outsider. So you had the restaurant there, and then in 2006, you left. So what happened between 97 and 2006 in terms of your restaurant and the politics and everything in the region? Well, I mean, we were a very successful restaurant, you know, in spite of, you know, like many Oaxacans consider me that I was an outsider. And then on 2006, there was a turmoil in Oaxaca, social unrest. And so we had, you know, the economy collapsed and we had to close the restaurant. Mm. And then uh, eventually we moved to Texas, to Austin in precisely. You and I spoke a while back about what is mole, mm-hmm. and your definition of it was totally different than what I thought. So could you just break it down for me? I mean, you said there were three basic components to mole. Maybe you could just take us through the the, the concept. Right. There are like three groups of ingredients to make a mole. So one will be vegetables, and by vegetables, I also mean chiles, okay? So tomatoes, tomatillos, and onions, and garlic, and such. And then we have spices, so let's say like black pepper or cumin, uh, cinnamon, sugar, salt, chocolate. 
And then at the third one, a very important one for this, are the thickeners. Could be bread or it could be masa, like for making tortillas, and also nuts like almonds. So there are the three. If you take a, a little bit of each in, in each one of those uh, categories, you will make a mole. And, and some mole, like a mole negro, is very complex, but I, I gather that some moles actually are much simpler than that, right? I mean, talk to us about a simple mole. Yeah, okay. Like, uh, let's say, like the mole verde, for example, I think is the simplest one. Uh, just take, uh, you know, fresh tomatillos, uh, green chiles, uh, serranos or jalapenos or one of those, onion, garlic, and put it in the blender. Right. And then you fry that mixture, and then you add some herbs, you know, fresh herbs. So I do a hoja santa, parsley, and a pasote. That's my traditional one. And then you have the thickener, which is the masa that you dilute first in, uh, in a little bit of water and you add it. So those are the basic ingredients. And you can make that mole in 20 minutes rather than the mole negro that it takes three days. I want you to describe, because I've had your mole negro and it was uh, divine. Uh, if you taste a really well-made mole negro, ideally, what should it be like? What is important when you make a mole, it is that not one of those stands out, not on one of those flavors. So you will taste it and it's like, oh, it tastes a little bit cinnamon. And then the next bite will give you a little bit of cumin, for example, right. or the next bite will give you a little bit of chocolate. So each uh, you know, spoonful that you take of the mole will give you an, a different note. Uh, let's let's talk about some common things in Oaxaca, the mollete, uh, which I had for breakfast. You just want to talk about how that's made and maybe the tradition of that dish? Well, the molletes is something simple that you will find all over Mexico, not only in Oaxaca. So mollete is a bolillo traditionally, like a, a piece of bread, like a kind of a French bread, and then uh, put a little bit of uh, butter in it, then beans, and then some cheese that it will melt. And then you put it under the oven or something to get kind of nice melting and crusted cheese. And then you make a salsa mexicana, like, which is like salsa pico de gallo, tomatoes, onion, chile verde, you know, either serrano or jalapeño, cilantro, and a little bit of lime juice, and then you serve it with it on the side. Uh, it was a terrific breakfast. <laughs> um, also, asiento, which is pork lard, is that often used as sort of a primary layer for lots of tacos and chalayudas? Is that something that's common ingredient there? Okay, lard is one thing, like lard is when you have a big piece of, uh, of uh, pork and then you take trim out the, the fat and then you cook it slowly and then you're, it renders the fat, right? Mm -hmm. So that is lard. And then asiento is when you're making chicharron, uh, the pork skin, and you're mm -hmm. frying it in lard. Then at the bottom, you will get I some uh, pieces and bits of, you know, the, the fat. So that is the asiento. And, and that's why it's dark colored. It has it has color to it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you open a tortilla, like a freshly made tortilla, handmade, of course, and then you put a little bit, a layer of that asiento, and then you eat it with your meal. Um, let's talk about the tortilla for a second. In Oaxaca, it's a corn tortilla, I guess, in northern Mexico, it's a wheat tortilla. But the tortillas in Oaxaca almost could pass for a wheat tortilla. They're very fine. They're very tender. They're nothing like what mm -hmm. you get here. So is that because right. you, you use very different kinds of corn? Is the process different? What, why are they so much better? A little bit of everything. First is the, the taste. The taste of the heirloom corn in, in Mexico is, is one. So sometimes you taste the tortillas here in the United States, then they're like kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. So that is wrong. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> that is like super wrong. So that was one of the things that when we moved to the States and I began to taste the tortillas here, like, no, by no means I will be able to serve this in the restaurant ever and ever. So, you know, thank God we found now uh, corn from Mexico, many times from Oaxaca directly. And so we processed it in-house and then we grind it. What would you like to tell me about the way you cook that I don't understand? Well, I guess, you know, things that I have problem with, you know, to explain the people, um, you know, one is Mexican food is not necessarily too spicy. I mean, depends on the, the taste of the, 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 you know, taste buds of the person, but in general, it's just about the flavors. Um, the other one is uh, people that have had through, you know, through the years coming to the restaurant and said, like, this is not Mexican food. <laughs> I mean, for years, we didn't have uh, flour tortillas in the restaurant. And it's like, oh, no, but this is not a tortilla. It's like, well, how can I explain you, you know, that, that corn tortillas is the basic, you know. And it is, you know, it's about the freshness also, very delicate flavors. So those things, I think, is the, what I would like the people to understand better about Mexican food. Ileana, it's been just an enormous pleasure uh, having you on Milk Street. Thank you. It has been an honor for me. Thank you very much, Chris. That was award-winning chef and culinary instructor, Eliana de la Vega. Her Austin-based restaurant is El Naranjo. Right now, Sarah Moulton and I are ready to take your questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. So, Sarah, you've been spending a lot of time at home lately for obvious reasons. Um, Any great little recipe tips uh, you've come up with uh, to keep yourself busy in the kitchen at night? You know, I've been making the no-need bread. Uh, You know, I've been doing that all the time because it's just so easy. It's like no-brainer. And I've just been making soup out of whatever I've got. You know, I just throw it all together and then puree a little bit to thicken it. And it's just so satisfying, those two things. Good idea. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Valerie Kershaw in Terre Haute, Indiana. How are you? And how can we help you? I'm doing fine. My mom says one of her proudest accomplishments is raising my brother and me to be confident in the kitchen. Our skills just grew over time organically. And my own kids are 10 and 7, and I want them to be confident in the kitchen as well. Now that we're homeschooling, I'm thoughtful about a more systematic way to introduce cooking skills. Do you have any advice? Here's what I would do. I would pick 12 recipes that, you could start with six, that represent different styles of cooking and methods. For example, a basic quick bread, like a baking powder biscuit. Kids love making those. I would take a basic skillet dish with eggs, scrambled eggs, you know, how to make eggs in a skillet. I would take a basic braise, like chicken with a little bit of liquid and on top of the stove or in the oven. I would take a basic maybe stir fry. That would be a little more advanced, but it would, I don't know if they use knives at this point, but you could help them with prepping vegetables, which would be great to learn how to use a knife safely. And those, you know, stir fries are quick to cook. A basic soup, you know, how to make a basic soup. So very simple things, each of which represents a different concept. If they get 12 recipes down, they'll know more about cooking than 99% of anyone you know, because they'll be able to replicate those recipes with different things over time, as long as they get the basic concept down. I think that's by far the best way to learn. Sarah, what do you think? I believe that really the most important thing is knife skills. Do you feel like your kids, even the seven-year-old, is ready to do some practicing with that? Yeah, we've started on knife skills with things that they can safely cut. 
the other thing I was going to say, which is similar to what Chris said, was more teaching, you know, a particular technique, like so skillet cooking, oven cooking, and then, you know, pursue it from every angle. So how to roast a chicken, how to roast vegetables, how to roast potatoes, because there's a lot that's in common regardless of what it is. But the last thing I wanted to ask you, since your mother did such a great job, what did she do? I guess it's from generations of cooks in the kitchen and really recipes like my grandma's pie crust recipe. We started with that and then you fill it differently. She used to go to work and leave my brother and me a recipe and we'd have to follow the instructions. So, you know, I've thought about how to read a recipe with them, but also how to taste and how to eat as you go along, because we definitely did that in the kitchen. Well, here's the thing about homeschooling. You can teach absolutely everything through cooking. History, math, science, English, uh, everything. Sarah, you didn't mention philosophy. Oh, sorry. (laughs) You're right. I mean, philosophy and cooking are very closely related. You know, it would be really interesting to take a recipe, a quick bread, for example, and let your children add different flavors to it every time they make it. Let them play with a fundamental recipe. Make it simple. You could do a savory biscuit. You do a sweet biscuit. You do lemon biscuit. You do anything you want. Varying a basic recipe is probably the best way to teach cooking because then they think for themselves. I think that's the key is not following a recipe. It's cooking, which is very different. Yes, teaching those higher thinking skills. I love it. Parents all over the world, thank you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carrie calling from May Farms in Byers, Colorado. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Can we help you or how can we help you? I am a 55-year-old woman. I work in a kitchen now and I am trying to navigate my achy hands that I suffer from when doing a ton of prep, trying to open jars, things like that. I'm wondering if you have any tips. I found... Getting just the right knife makes a big difference. I used to use the classic European chef's knife. I found that an akiri knife, which is two inches deep, it's a Japanese vegetable knife. They're very thin blades, and they just slice right through vegetables with no effort at all. The blade itself is just so thin. It's not wedging through the carrot or the cabbage. It's gliding through it. The traditional ones have octagonal handles, and those handles I find actually more comfortable than most chef's knife handles from... Europe. And that has really made my prep work so much easier because most of the prep work, you know, is vegetables. That and also, I don't know how you sharpen your knives. I use either an electric sharpener or I use, there's a diamond whetstone I love as well, but a really sharp knife, you know, look at professionals, they'll take a sharpening steel and every time they pick up the knife, they give it a couple of swipes just to keep the edge. And of course, Sarah's actually worked in a restaurant. So maybe she has some better advice than I do. Well, Carrie, I want to first ask you, you said you've always worked in restaurants. Well, this is my actual first kitchen job in a restaurant. And has your hands hurt the whole time or just recently? It took a few months for it to hurt, probably because we just got busier and busier and I've just taken on more. Yeah. Well, some of this is normal and natural, but I have a couple of other questions. One is, what height is your counter? Is it too high, perhaps? It doesn't feel like it. I don't feel like I'm... Compromise. Question number two, I was going to ask you what kind of knife you've been working with. I bought a knife, I think it was an $80 knife, and I got it on sale, and it's great. And then there's just knives that have been in the kitchen, you know, 
it was like mostly a catering operation. And we have a cute little restaurant that does business for the community. Well, it did until, you know, recently, mm-hmm. but, um, I try to keep them as sharp as possible. I have a butcher that I work with and he sharpens them for me too. And I try to sharpen them every time I use them and I grip them. Like sometimes I find myself in like a death grip, yes. like a um, white knuckle. Yeah. If you have a sharp knife and you have the right size counter, you really shouldn't be having these problems. So I think it gets back to the death grip situation, and you have to be much more conscious about the fact that you're doing that. In terms of the knives, I'm on both sides of it. I recently got a very thin Japanese knife, and I love it. Up until then, it was a 10-inch chef's knife for me. And the thing about the European model is they're heavier. And what that means is the knife does the work for you. When you come down in that arc, the handle brings you down and you don't have to force it down. It just comes down naturally. The European knives of the last hundred years have gotten heavier and heavier as sort of a selling point. But knives used to be fairly light. When you use a nakiri or a Japanese, you know, vegetable knife, you don't come down in an arc you slice through away from you. So you're not using weight and gravity. You're slicing through and it's almost effortless. I so appreciate your advice. I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for taking my call. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Sarah. My name is Alex Matthews. Hi, Alex. Where are you calling from? From West Newbury, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? I have a question about bread baking hardware. Okay. Um, Mostly kind of the simplified stuff from flour, water, salt, yeast. And all those recipes tell you to prove the shaped loaves in proving baskets. And I don't have any, and I wasn't sure what's special about them or what they actually add to the process. A proofing basket lends support to the dough and also gives it sort of a pretty pattern. You know, it can be made out of cane, but you can also use a bowl just lined with a cloth. If you get an actual proofing basket that's lined with cloth, it helps to absorb some of the moisture, but I think it's more for aesthetic than any other reason, just because it looks pretty to have those rings around the outside of the dough. I mean, you don't have a proofing basket. How's it been going? It's generally been going okay. Like, it always tastes good. The shaping is one of the parts that I have more difficulty with, but I'm probably not controlling for all the variables. And I heard a conversation that you and Chris had with the caller where you talked about proper temperature and especially during kind of late winter baking, we keep our house heated only to about 62 or 64 degrees. So I know that it's not quite warm enough, but I figured a proofing basket was one thing I could certainly fix if I should just use one of the millions of bowls I have. I think a bowl is just fine, but let me see what Chris has to say here. Let's start with the obvious question. What kind of bread are you making? Is this a bull, you know, a round European loaf? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, round European loaf, no sour. Is this a really soft dough? I mean, the reason, I disagree with Sarah a little bit. Um, I've used them for years. They are a cane basket, but they're almost always lined with linen of some kind. And so you don't really get a pattern on the outside. It just shapes the dough. So as it proofs, it's not going to go all over the place. It's a linen covering inside, and then you put some flour on it. 
I don't think it really absorbs much moisture, but it just gets it out of the basket easily. It's simple. You could use a bowl. Uh, line it with a kitchen towel would also work. So, I mean, the big advantage with a linen line basket is the dough won't stick. So you can turn it over. It's light. So I think it's just a practical way of getting something out of a bowl without it sticking. Yeah, and so maybe even I'll just try a flowered linen cloth. Yes, I think that's yeah. a good plan. Alex, thank you so much. Yes. And good luck and just use the flowered kitchen towel to, to start. And let us know how it goes. Of course. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thank Bye. you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Carolyn Gorman from Lutzburg, Virginia. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? Well, I was in Paris about a year ago, and I had the most wonderful quiche Lorraine. And I can't forget how wonderful it was, and I've been trying to duplicate it. This quiche was at a cafe, and it had to be between two and a half and three inches tall. And it was airy and light. It was a marvel. It was almost a souffle. So my question is, how did they get it to be so light and airy and so high? This is very weird. I had this exact quiche a year ago in Seattle at a French cafe, and I took one bite and went, this is a souffle, right? I mean, it was exactly the same. Maybe they got the recipe from your cafe in Paris. I don't know. The three things they do, we found out, they obviously got cream in it. It has six eggs, which is a lot, but it has a super surprise ingredient, which is creme fraiche. Creme fraiche, even though you think it's heavy and fatty, when you whip it up with the other ingredients, I use it in ice cream too. It gives you a really wonderful light consistency. So even though there's a lot of fat, eggs, cream, creme fraiche in this recipe, it is incredibly light. Would you send it to me? Sure. We'll get your email address after the call. Sarah, you must be a quiche expert, right? I would have going to make an educated guess that the secret ingredient was probably something like cream. But it sounds like it was a triple whammy of the cream, the creme fraiche, and extra eggs. I've been experimenting, and I used six eggs and two cups of heavy whipping cream, which I whipped up for three minutes on high. And it is beautiful, but it is not as tall and light and airy. It's delicious. But it did not have creme fraiche. Well, you're pretty close. We use six eggs, uh, one and a half cups heavy cream, and one cup of creme fraiche. That's the triad, the three key ingredients that really make the difference. It's just spectacular. Yeah. And then, Carolyn, you're going to have to try it and let us know if it's what you were looking for. Oh, thank you. I would love to do that. Yeah. This quiche was so good, I could go back to Paris just for the day and go to Cafe Marley and be happy and come on home if I had to. It was just a delicious thing. Now you have the recipe and try it. I mean, I, you know, in our kitchen in Boston, you can always tell if it's a good recipe when I keep saying, you know, we should make it around late morning again, just keep trying it. I think we had it, I had it for lunch like for two weeks, so it's pretty good. We'll send it to you uh, today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for calling, Carolyn. Thank you, Carolyn. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're talking with Chef Edward Lee about his initiative to help feed America's restaurant workers. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. Ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Edward Lee. He's a chef, independent restaurateur, also founder of the Lee Initiative. In response to restaurant closures around the country, the Lee Initiative has formed a nationwide coalition of restaurants that have been transformed into relief centers for workers. Edward and I are connecting over Skype. Edward, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. I know you're real busy, uh, but uh, we just really wanted to talk about what you're doing. Maybe we could start by talking about you. You grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, I guess you went to the Kentucky Derby and fell in love with Louisville. Um, just tell us a little bit about your restaurants there and your style of cooking as a start. Yeah, so... Uh... I landed in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, gosh, 18 years ago, and just fell in love with the South and Kentucky and horses and bourbon and and pretty ladies and hats, and uh, I I never left. So I have uh, three restaurants in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, 610 Magnolia, Milkwood, and Whiskey Dry. I have a lovely wife, Diane, and and Arden, my six-year-old. A couple of years ago, we started a small nonprofit called the Lee Initiative, which was to empower women in positions of leadership in the restaurant industry and um, to just create more diversity overall in the restaurant landscape. Could you just tell us a little bit about the restaurant business pre-COVID-19? I, I gather it's a just from a business point of view, it's not an easy business. The margins are small. So even in the best of times, what is it like to run a bunch of restaurants? It's um, it's very competitive. The market is very saturated, um, and I don't you know I, I don't say that in a, in a bad way, but we have for the past two to three decades seen an incredible explosion of independent restaurant culture, which has been an amazing thing to witness, an amazing thing to be a part of. But it also means there's there's a lot of restaurants in every city. And, you know, we, we were living in a situation where the amount of skilled labor was not able to keep up with the number of restaurant openings. And so we, we all were living in this tenuous balance of rising costs and dwindling labor. I, I don't want to be a doomsdayer, but the, the industry of independent restaurants, you know, was, was walking a tightrope for a long time. and. Uh, you know, it, any little thing could have triggered a big downfall in the restaurant industry. And, and this was like a bowling ball dropped on your head. So now let's get to the current situation. So w- when did you realize there was a problem and how did you transition from business as usual to where you are now? Yeah, um, it, it's been very interesting. I, I've been talking about this a lot lately. And I remember the week before the restaurant closures, they canceled the NBA season. And um, we just all collectively looked at that and said, this this is going to be everything. Like, if they can shut down the NBA, they can shut down restaurants easily. That last weekend that we were open in Louisville, we were busy. We had a great weekend. And Sunday, uh, March the 15th, our governor rightfully and justifiably saw the signs coming and decided to act early. So so what did you do on March 16th? 
we, you know, just kind of sat in a little bit of shock and dismay and, and disbelief and looked around and said, all right, you know, after an hour of feeling sorry for yourself, you know, let's just get back to work and see what we need to do. So, you know, as, as I have three restaurants in Louisville, so as, as one would naturally do, we figured we were going to be shut down for two weeks. We cleaned out all our walk-ins and consolidated it all to my main restaurant, which is 610 Magnolia. And the director of, of the Lee Initiative is a woman by the name of Lindsay Osasek. And uh, she really drives the whole thing. And she sat there and said, well, you know, do you want to feed people? And um, we had done this last year when, when there was a government shutdown. We turned our catering kitchen into a relief center and we fed the TSA workers. And, and so we had kept all the business models for that. We had the blueprint, how much it cost, how many people to run, how we're going to logistics were all there. So we went back to that document and said, well, sure, we can do this. So instead of feeding TSA workers, we would just be feeding our peers in the restaurant industry. And uh, we had plenty of food. So I said, okay, we'll do it. I don't know how long we can do this for. By Tuesday, March the 16th, we had opened a relief kitchen uh, in less than 24 hours. Just put the word out on the local news. And um, I think about almost 300 people showed up that first day for food. And, and we were we were blown away. People were in panic mode. People were crying. People were just desperate. And um, that night, in fact, uh, Lindsay made a call to Maker's Mark because they they were already our partners in the nonprofit for a women's initiative that we're doing. And the makers turned to us and said, if, if we find you money, can you take this nationwide and open up a dozen kitchens? And uh, we honestly did not sleep for a week. Um, the first call I made was to Nancy Silverton in Los Angeles. And the second call I made was to Eduardo Jordan in Seattle. Uh, and both chefs came on board instantly. And we were able to activate both of their kitchens within like two or three days. I activated my restaurant in D.C. And we had Jose Salazar, who's a good friend of mine, activate in Cincinnati. So by the end of that first week, we had five kitchens up and running. And every single one of them was overrun with people. Let me ask the obvious question. Uh, you, Jose Andres, has done this, of course, too. World Kitchen. Um, this is all ground up, right? Uh, and it seems, you know, I spoke to Jose about this a while ago. Um, the, the inability for government agencies to organize quickly and provide aid uh, is <laughs> you know, it's pretty clear. And you guys are just getting it done, small restaurateurs uh, with some help, donations, uh, corporate donations as well. And now you're feeding 58,000 people with meals. Um, is there something wrong with this uh, scenario or is this how it should happen? Um, no, I think there's something very wrong with it. And, and you know, what I hate about politics and what I hate about partisanship is that we end up fighting over policy and fighting over who's to blame. But in the meantime, as that fight wears on, the people on the front lines, just your, your average person goes hungry. And I've always said this, you know, because we do a lot of charity work in, in Louisville. And if someone is needy, they don't care if that money is coming from 
a conservative or a progressive. They just need the money. They need the help. And when we're asking for donations, we don't care if that donation is coming from someone who's a Republican or a Democrat. We just want the help. And so, so my focus in, in any of these scenarios is just, you know, it's, it's an emergency. It's like triage. How do you keep the kitchens open and do it safely for the workers? And does that give you some indication of how you might move forward as these restrictions are eased? and Maybe you have to run a restaurant differently than you have in the past? It, it, it's been very difficult. I mean, you know, the first week that we were up and running, no one was wearing face masks. You know, like literally policy was changing daily and we would adjust. And so, you know, now we have, you know, newsletters and guidelines that we send out pretty much twice a week trying to make sure that everyone is doing our best practices. I mean, we are, we're at a point where we're at a zero contact procedure for, for anyone that's coming in. And I think, you know, as, as people in the hospitality business, we're, we're accustomed to things changing and turning on a dime. You know, I mean, I, how many restaurant owners can you ask and say, hey, do you ever have a party just call like two hours before and say, can you accommodate 30 people? Hmm. And every single one of us is like, yeah, yeah, this happens, you know, and, and what do we do? We do it. You know, it, do I wish that the federal government would step in and say, listen, we need to mobilize 50,000 kitchens across America in every city, town, and state. And we need to give money to all of these chefs and restaurants to mobilize them to work and to feed not just the hungry and the poor and the needy, but feed everyone. That would be amazing. That would get the economy back. You know, right now we have millions of restaurant workers, you know, trained, skilled chefs who could be cooking food that are out of work. We have hundreds of thousands of restaurants just sitting idle that could be feeding people that are just completely idle right now. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of space. And meanwhile, we have millions of Americans, many of whom do not cook, who are all of a sudden having to provide three meals a day for their families. And they're running to supermarkets that have nothing left on the shelves. And it just kills me to think, like, we could be feeding America. Do you think the food world, the hospitality business, is unique in some ways? Because even before this, of course, you guys did a lot of... uh outreach, you did nonprofit, every chef has done dinners for different causes. It seems to me the restaurant world already does have some sort of a nonprofit bent and a willingness to help the community. You think that's true? A thousand percent. And I think what we've realized too, and I hope people realize this out there that, that's listening, is uh, you know, restaurants now, they're really a part of the community. Anytime there's a tragedy, anytime there's a hurricane or a tornado, anytime there's people in need, the independent restaurants are the first ones to step up. Not the chain restaurants, you know, not the fast food restaurants. The independent restaurants are the first one to come. And, and they always step up in ways that are creative, uh, in ways that are meaningful, in ways that really you understand that they are part of a network, the fabric of a community. And just imagine a world without that where you don't have that place, where you don't have that special place to take your wife on her anniversary or your kid for graduation. You know, we, we, we create memories, we create art, we create experiences, we create things that you just cannot replicate in chain restaurants. That's why the independent restaurant movement blossomed over the last two decades. And America's been at the forefront of it. And to see that go away or, or lose steam is, is heartbreaking. Well, 
I'm older than you by a fair amount. Uh, and growing up in the 50s, I remember, uh, you know, we, we, we were reasonably well off, but we go to a Chinese restaurant at a strip mall probably, you know, four or five times a year. Uh, and that was about it. It wasn't that we didn't have the money. It's just there was no culture around eating out, really. And think about how much we learn culturally from other people through restaurants, you know, whether we go to an Israeli restaurant or, you know, Mexican restaurants. And, and there's so much transference of culture and knowledge and respect and just a shared experience that happens at these cultural restaurants all across America. And, and we just got there too, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, this is kind of tired. It's been there. I mean, we just got to this sort of beautiful place uh, and, and we were celebrating restaurants of culture, restaurants of people of color, and, and it's come to a grinding halt right now. And so there's a huge risk of, of a lot of this being stopped or, or failing. We have to keep thinking about all of these people. Is there any particular person you fed or worked with in this last three weeks that sort of tells the whole story for you, you know, is sort of symbolic of what's going on? You know, the, what kills me is that this is no one's fault, right? No one did anything wrong. And all of a sudden we find these people who are so proud and they're so strong and all of a sudden they're in need. And um, I had this one person send me a message on Facebook and uh, I'm going to get emotional when I talk about this, but she said, are you guys still doing the program? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Come by. And she said, I've been waiting. And this was, you know, 10 days into it. She said, I've been waiting because I know there are people who are more desperate than me. And so I haven't been coming to the kitchen to pick up food, but now I'm hungry and I have nothing in my fridge. And can I come by? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of asking permission, you know, to be fed is just heartbreaking. This is, this is something that we have to get through to each other, that it's, it's not a pride thing at all. Like there's no shame in coming and picking up food. Um, we, we all need it. Well, Edward, I just want to thank you personally and from, for everybody in the business uh, for what you're doing. It's amazing. Um, and it also gives us hope, you know, that this will be over and uh, hopefully something good will come out of this uh, at some point. But you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Chef Edward Lee. To learn about what Lee and other chefs around the country are doing to help people during the crisis, go to leeinitiative.org. You know, I usually use this segment of the show to offer a bit of philosophy or maybe to praise one of our guests for their culinary skills. Today, however, I offer neither opinion nor advice. I'm simply not qualified to do so. I will comment, however, that the folks who are on the very front lines of this crisis, they're at emergency rooms, checkout lines, in restaurants doing takeout, or in rescue or delivery trucks, deserve a lot more than just our thanks. They deserve our help. Edward Lee is not delivering good wishes. He's delivering food and supplies. And that, I would propose, is the true meaning of hospitality. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik shares an epiphany he had while organizing his cookbooks. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. 
And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Eaton Mess. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Who doesn't love the English? The English are eccentric, interesting, and they always have desserts called puddings because that's, in fact, was their tradition. They steam puddings. Well, one of the desserts people probably don't know here is Eaton Mess, right, which is from the school Eaton. And it's whipped cream, it's berries, usually strawberries, and some broken up meringue cookies. The origins of that recipe may be because there was a picnic basket and a big dog sat on it, and they made a mess of the whipped cream, the berries, and the cookies. In any case, it's a very, very simple dessert. It's light and fresh. And we thought we'd adapt it to uh, Milk Street. And so what did we do? So, Chris, we took the basics of this dish and just sort of elevated them a little bit by adding some elements at each step to enhance the flavor and the texture. So the first thing is anything with mess in the title should probably not be super fussy. So we're Good not going to make our own meringue cookies here. We found that the store-bought cookies work just as well. But what we did was run them under the broiler for about 30 seconds. That added a little bit of almost like toasted marshmallow flavor. It also made them really crispy, which is good because mm. they're going to get mixed in with cream and berries. We just didn't want them to get too soggy. Much like when you toast marshmallows, if you get too close to the fire, they burn up. 
you really want to keep an eye on these when they're under the broiler because they go from good to bad really fast. Sounds like Daedalus. I like my Greek myths. So strawberries here in the States don't have a lot of flavor. So what do we do about that? We chose not to use them. Oh, well, good, good idea. <laughs> We're using raspberries here. They're more consistent year-round. We also liked that they were a little tart. Uh, This is a pretty sweet dish, so we wanted to add a little bit of tartness here. We use them in two different ways. We use them fresh, whole, and then we're going to make a puree with some, a cooked puree. So mash them down, cook them, add a little bit of lemon juice, and then we get that raspberry flavor throughout the dish. Now, since this is Milk Street, I would assume we added some spice or some unusual ingredient just to trick up the flavor. You would be right. The last element of this dish is whipped cream. And at Mill Street, we always love to add sour cream to our whipped cream. We love that balance of the richness and the tanginess. But we also added some cardamom. This is a common Middle Eastern ingredient, especially in fruit desserts. So it added a little bit of something special. It almost made the dish slightly more elegant, even though it's a mess. Oh, the Martha Stewart (laughs) in Milk Street. Lynn, thank you so much. And finally, was there anything else we added? So we added some toasted pistachios. Again, that's a common Middle Eastern ingredient in desserts. And this gets either mixed together in a big bowl, like a mess, or what we like to do is make it a little more elegant and put it in a glass and layer it like a parfait. You're becoming so elegant. Aren't I? I? This is the new Lynn. So we have whipped cream with some sour cream and cardamom. We have raspberries. We have a puree. And we have the toasted meringue. Pretty simple dessert and very Milk Street. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can find this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hello, this is Linda Leone, and here is my tip. When a recipe calls for just lemon juice, I will zest the lemon before juicing it so that I can have that wonderful lemon zest for another recipe that calls for just lemon zest without the juice. I put it in a small container in the freezer and I always have beautiful, fresh lemon zest for my recipes. And that's my tip. Thank you. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Adam Gopnik. Mr. Gopnik, uh, what's on your mind this week? Uh, well, what is on my mind, Mr. Kimball? Let me see. One of the things that's been happening in my life is I've been doing something I've been meaning to do for, oh, I don't know, 20 years, maybe for my entire life, and that's to organize my cookbooks. I don't know how often you do that, being an incomparably more organized person than I am. But I was staring at them forever, and I finally decided I'm going to start bringing some order to this huge variety of books I have on cooking and eating. And I began to have a sudden, almost eureka-like insight into the way that our passion for food develops over time. Uh, It comes, I've decided, in three distinct stages. Have you any interest, Mr. Campbell, in hearing what those three distinct stages might be? This is not like the the five stages of accepting one's demise, I hope. (laughs) Well, it's, it's actually a little more cheerful than that, but it is every bit as distinct. Yes, indeed. First, there's the earnest encyclopedia. Then comes the tale of private obsession and quest. And finally, 
there comes the corrective, the book or the literature of the corrective conscience. Allow me to flesh that out for you. <laughs> we begin really with the earnest encyclopedias. Julia Childs, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, of course, is a classic, obviously, but so is Waverly Roots, The Food of France. And those books are by Americans, and they're very much earnest encyclopedias, giving you the full range of everything possible within that world. And we love those books, and that's where our experience of those things began. After that, I find in my own bookshelf, and I suspect in the broader bookshelf of the world, you find tales of personal obsession. What's next to Julia Child in my bookshelf? Um, Richard Olney, right? right? And Olney is all about the obsessive perfectionism, the specificity of his quest for the real and the true French menu. As in three days to make the perfect aspic, as I remember, out of Olney's book? It, at least three days, and there's only one right way to make green beans, uh, if you remember, and it's a, it's a seven minute and 58 second recipe followed by buttering and you have to enrobe the green beans. It has a level of almost beautifully manic obsessiveness about it. And then after that, what comes after? Well, of course, it's the corrective. It's all the books that tell you too much butter. It's all the books from Michel Girard on beyond that tell you that everything you learned in those first two kinds of books, the Ernest Encyclopedia and the Tale of Obsessive Quest, are leading you in the wrong direction. Those are the kind of the three generations of books that we get. And, you know, the same thing is true, it struck me, when I moved on to my shelf of Italian books. I don't know what your first uh, Italian cookbook or exposure was, but mine was, I suspect, like so many people's, Marcella Hazan. Marcella Hazan, yeah. Right. Wasn't that where we all began? Yes, it was. And Marcella, like Julia, and we love to call these people by their first names because we feel intimate with them, was an earnest encyclopedia. And then we go on with the tales of obsessive questing. Uh, I think about my old friend uh, Bill Buford's book, Heat, about fulfilling a dream of cooking in an Italian kitchen, or of a book even more successful than that one, uh, Eat, Pray, Love, by my, another old friend, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, where, as you probably recall, Christopher, all the eating is done in Italy as she goes off in search of pasta. She goes to learn how to cook the perfect pasta after a lifetime of eating storefront spaghetti in New York. And then finally, we get all of the books that tell us we've completely misunderstood Italian cooking, that it isn't <laughs> A business of uh, heavy pastas deeply enrobed with sauce, but that real Italian cooking is the sweet and sour North African-inspired cooking of Venice, or it's the, um, the nutty and uh, minty cooking of Sicily. So once again, you have exactly that same pattern, right? Ernest Encyclopedia, Obsessive Quest, Corrective Conscience. I would agree with the encyclopedia as the first step, but then I think the next step is, you know, Indian cooking isn't a cuisine. It's 35 cuisines. You get that very local version. Yes. Uh, and everyone's quite different, which is sort of like your third stage. But there's a, a last stage, which I'm fascinated, which is like Nick Sharma, right? He grew up in right. Bombay, moved to Ohio right. for college, and now he takes inspiration from his hometown and mixes it up. So it's sort of mix and mash is the third stage or fourth stage, I find. I'm fascinated by that. To my mind, usually the second thing that you're describing where you say, oh, French cooking, there's no such thing as French cooking. There are only the cookings of the regions of France. But that tends to, as writing, as literature, tends to become quest obsessed. Yeah, that's true. And I, I've tracked this through as I was organizing my bookcase right through to one of the uh, latter additions to my uh, reading, which are books about coffee. You know, 20 years ago, 
Chris, I can't remember a book about coffee. Coffee was not a subject of that kind. It was a beverage that you consumed, but it wasn't a, a, an ingredient that you savored in the way you might savor wine. Uh, but now it has exactly the same kind of thing. There's books about the global history of coffee, which tells you every place that coffee has been and where it's come from. And then you have stories of obsessing, questing for coffee. I don't know if you remember Stuart Lee Allen's hugely entertaining book, The Devil's Cup, which is all about his pursuit for the one perfect cup of eroticized coffee on the, in the highlands of Ethiopia. And then after that, you begin to get the corrective literature. And the corrective literature of coffee is maybe the, uh, the darkest of all because it's all about the enormous cruelty and oppression of the coffee plantation. So you might almost say, Christopher, that there's a kind of tripod that supports our culinary imagination. We need all three kinds. We want to know something about the underlying grammar of the cooking that we love. We also want to recognize that it comes in multiple fragments that can only be passed through the prism of an obsessive individual sensibility. And finally, we do want to be reminded that there's always a dark shadow. There's a coffee plantation hidden behind it. There's a history of famine behind the peasant food that we love. And keeping those three pillars of consciousness all the time as we cook and eat is part of the duty of a cook. Adam, you're the only guy I know who organizes his cookbook shelf and comes up with a three-part philosophy. It, well, that's because when I'm organizing my cookbook shelf, I'm staring off into space thinking while my wife is tapping her fingers and saying, could you please finish organizing the cookbook shelf? And I finally do. <laughs> I know what that's like. Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure talking. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you could download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clath. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. An audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.